Once upon a time, Jesus was talking to a bunch of religious oppressors. They saw themselves as morally superior, virtuous, and they looked down on pretty much everybody else. Jesus was talking about the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this group, they wanted to justify themselves. So they asked the question, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells this story. There was this guy just walking down the street, minding his own business, and then suddenly he runs into this gang. And they, they grabbed him, they beat him, and they threw him in an alley, and they left him there to die, lying in his own blood. A couple minutes later, a progressive social justice warrior comes by. And for a split second, she thinks, ah, maybe I should help this guy. But, but no, she doesn't. She keeps going because she's late for a BLM protest. A few minutes later, a second person comes by. They don't even see the guy. They practically step over him. They're glued to their phone, having this heated debate. A trans activist with a radical feminist on Twitter. Then finally, a third person comes by. This person calls 911, performs CPR, helps the guy stay alive while the ambulance comes. He even learns what hospital the guy's going to so that he can be there and make sure he's okay. So Jesus turns to the group and he says, so which one was the good Samaritan? You know, which one is your neighbor? And they all agreed. It was the, it was the third guy. You know, he, he was the one who showed mercy. So Jesus responds, yes, that's right. Be like this guy. He's your neighbor. Oh, I, I forgot to tell you. He, he was the conservative, pro-life, pro-gun, white, straight Trump supporter. Welcome to the Soma Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Paul. Now that we've deconstructed our evangelical beliefs, we're trying to find a way forward to hold on to Christian faith and community in a post-Christian culture. talking about identity politics gonna step in that quagmire yeah what a crazy thing to do uh we've gone so we've gone so well here mark why would we touch a topic like this well you know it's interesting that our last podcast uncancelled has clearly the most been the most uh popular has the most uh, downloads most listening and i think it's maybe because it is one that is kind of pushing the envelope just a tiny bit more a little clearer and focused yeah, for sure. Um, felt that way. Actually, I was going to reference it again because I felt like that's what launched us into wanting to talk about identity today, right? The the idea of, um, we talked about it in our last podcast that, uh, you know, we can get free from these systems uh, and Jesus invites us to, to follow his example, to deny, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So I, I wanted to just, you know, make a reference to the the way we opened today. It was a little different than the normal I think a lot of people would recognize the the parable I told today about the uh, the Good Samaritan, and um, with a bit of a twist, I think, and, and a bit of a different lens, a modern day lens. And I, I wanted to tell that story because I wanted to show that, you know, when Jesus told parables, that's that's how people would have reacted. So if, if people heard that parable at the beginning, some some of our listeners listeners might have been kind of pricked like ouch right others might have thought oh that's great i love that i love the way you told that parable um but the the impact of of jesus's parables would have been felt that way like usually what happens is he would just he would tell the story and there'd be this twist ending that people didn't expect and it would be shocking and it would poke at the identity politics of his day and we totally miss that you know today because we're, we learn about the Good Samaritan in some Sunday school class. And, and today, the Good Samaritan means somebody who's you know kind and shows mercy and does great things. But the Samaritan would have not been a, um, a person in their society that the people he was talking to would have seen in a favorable light. Yeah, the Samaritans were considered kind of um, they saw themselves as part of the Jewish story and history, but they were they were looked down upon by by the Jews in Jerusalem, and they saw their religion as kind of like not the real thing, right? So yeah. there was ethnic and there was religious differences, like many of the kind of identity struggles that we see today. Um, and so it was it was shocking that the Samaritan who is um, considered inferior and has a degenerate version of religion 
is the one that does the right thing. And I think we don't get that shock when we read it today because we think we understand it and we put we know who the bad guys are, the religious guys. And, and so by putting Trump supporters in the marginal group, I think that's actually a risky move. But it does, <laughs> it does regain the shock. And maybe that was the intent, of I think, of many of the parables were shocking. They were meant to make you think and put you in a place where it's like, what what's he saying you know how, how do i reconcile this with how i see the world and that's maybe effective to do it that way and i would have told that story differently depending on the audience right like i remember in the in the 90s i was in a church preaching and i told the same story and i i used i think it was a gay a gay man was the good samaritan and i, I could feel like the discomfort in the room and sort of that shock value uh, and I, you know, we could have told the same story today, depending on the audience. It could have been, uh, you know, a a woke left progressive person who's the good Samaritan. It just depends on who's in the room and who is considered the, you know, the enemy or or the one that we should fight against or the one that is, you know, is them and this is us. Um, and I think I think a lot of people going through deconstruction, which you know, which you and I have experienced in the past, a, de- a deconstruction of our faith. A lot of the friends I've talked to who have, you know, become, um, you know, sort of post post evangelical, they they seem to still put the, um, you know, the church in that in that religious moral elite category that the Pharisees were in, uh, and I don't know, Mark. I feel like times are changing. I feel like in a post Christian culture, especially here in Canada, I, I don't think in many circles it would be the church or evangelicals or Christians that would be in those elite positions that have sort of power and sway. I think it's a different group. And I think that's why I want to poke at it. And I I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, And in fact, so one of the people I listen to on podcast, Jonathan Peugeot talks about there's, there's identities at the margin that have been traditionally at the margin of society up until very recently mm. are now at the center. So, you know, whether that's homosexuals or tra- transgender or whatever it is, you know, there's been a kind of an inversion that's happened in our culture where now it's like, if you say that you, if you're white and you're Christian, then you're, you're essentially moving towards the margin and, and, people that used to be on the margin are in the center. So there's been a a flip-flop culturally. And what does that do, right? But for many people who have grown up with church background, I've I've always felt like, and I've had friends that have been gone through the deconstruction, that they can't quite shake that uh, Christian upbringing. And and, and they, they spend a lot of time deconstructing it. They spend a lot of time trying to work out the the bridge between their identity that they grew up with you know going to church their parents and all of the expectations of that versus what they experienced in the wider culture you know and you know sometimes it's through music it's through filmmaking it's through relationships that they meet this point where there's a tension between that traditional identity that they grew up with which often i find they feel had a lack of freedom for them and then what they perceive as the freedom or the experiences the freedom of these new identities. And so how do you reconcile that cultural transition? And really that's a lot of what we were talking about and around, right? It's how do we, how do we work that out? And, um, and I think culturally we're at a weird point where we have moved some identities to the center and others to the margins. And will that bring the freedom that people think it will? I'm not so sure. You know, there's, I think the equation is still um, being played out. But we're, I guess we're trying to speak to people about identity. I think identity is the whole thing. I think the Bible talks about identity in so many different ways and access points. I personally have struggled and worked through a lot of identity issues in my own life. Became a Christian in my 20s. It was a huge identity flip in my own life that I had to work out. And I've been wrestling with that, you know, that religious Christian that everybody dislikes and everybody likes to make sure that you know that they're not a part of. But I I felt at one point that God, um, when I first became a Christian, one of the first things I felt God kind of prompt me was to go to church. And I had to work that out, you know. And I, I remember I was just, I was fairly young in my marriage and Alex and I had, um, committed our, our life to Christ and we started going to different churches and, and, you know, experiencing kind of what we expected. Like some of those places were just like graveyards. People were essentially asleep, you know, and others were just kind of wacky and, 
in your face and uncomfortable. And we, we were trying to find what is the place where our identity can can inquire and can experience Christ and God and learn from other people without feeling like we're jettisoning everything that we were, you know, and I think that's part of the challenge that people face if they want to understand more about God and understand more about Christ. That's interesting. So for you to be able to kind of go to the next step or, or to go where God was leading you, there was this letting go of who you thought you were, right? Or who, who you thought you were in your identity to be able to go and humble yourself to go in, into a church. I'm sure that was a really difficult thing for you to do. It, uh, it felt unnatural, um, but my own curiosity, I wanted to understand more about God and I wanted to learn more about God. And um, so we just sort of went on this, and I really think it was a process of identity change and transformation. And that God was kind of leading me on that process, leading my wife as well. I remember when we first started going to his church in Winnipeg, we, um, you know, we would all be dressed in black, and we'd take all our friends and all dressed in black, and you know, we just looked different. We stood out. I mean, normal to us, but in the cultural context that we were visiting at that time, it, we stood out. But I, I was always willing to. Um, I just kept going forward, and I was willing to look past that, you know, because I, I, I honestly don't think God cares about the outward appearance of people, but it is always a construct, right? And we're always, identity is always worked out in a, in a relationship with other people, and there's always that back and forth, and uh, different people have different expectations, different look at people differently, and uh, it's it's a big challenge for many people, you know, even today, I, I don't go to a traditional uh, church very often anymore, but it, it's a challenge for people, you, you know, to go into a church. People feel uncomfortable. People feel that they'll be judged or that they'll be outside. All those are, I think, are cultural barriers. Yeah, I've been thinking, I've been trying to think about how Jesus responds or would respond to a, a culture where there's identity politics sort of gone amok, right? Running rampant. And the thing is, I think we've, we've said this before, but I think Jesus's culture was the same, and maybe it's been it's it's the human condition. Uh, but that's why I told this parable of the Good Samaritan because he tells this parable or this story to a, the group that's in that has the power, right? It's the group that has the that has the moral superiority, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you know he mentions people like them who come by and they just walk right by the guy who's been robbed and left for dead. And then, and then the marginalized, the, the person that they consider their enemy is the one that ends up being the, the good one. And um, I, I think that identity, what's hard about it or what's dangerous about it or what causes so much trouble is when we use it to feel superior, right? To, to claim that moral superior uh superiority and 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 the being that moral or religious elite and that's why i I made i I make this hypothesis that that is shifting in our culture um to who is who is sort of dictating what is righteous or virtuous and who is who is creating clear lines of who's who's us and then who's them but 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 has the power you know in in society to determine that and who is that list of, of people that don't fit or don't belong? You know, um, in Jesus' day, obviously, it was the Pharisees who held that high ground, that high moral ground. And they had a list of people that were considered, they would say, sinners. And, you know, I, I'm doing air quotes here for people who, who are listening to the podcast. And the Pharisee, the word Pharisee itself means like to, to be separate, like to separate themselves. There's, there's an inherent disunity or ununity in the very name of, of this group. Uh, to pull themselves away from others that they consider sinners, and and some of the groups on this list in that day were were women. Women were considered sinners, especially um, what they would call sinful women or you know prostitutes. Uh, lepers were in that group. There was sort of this con, you know this contagion that you don't want to ever go near or touch, and 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 these this group would certainly live in in a in in their own camps and be cast out of society and and not not experience the benefits of that society. Tax collectors were in that group because they were seen as as um, they were Jewish people who were now collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. So they were seen as traitors. 
uh, and they were also super rich. So I think there would have been a sort of this sort of anti, like against the 1%, like these would be like the billionaires of their society, the Samaritans, as we said, and Gentiles, especially, especially Romans. And I find that when Jesus is in that scene where there's this group of powerful people that are determining who's in and who's out, and then he starts to, you know, touch lepers and he invites himself over for dinner to the house of a tax collector and he allows a, a woman a prostitute to like wash his feet with her with her tears and dry them with her hair and use her perfume on his feet the perfume she would have used for her profession like and, and that was happening in a pharisee's house so it was constantly this clash against the pharisees but him embracing and him lifting up the ones that they would have been prejudiced against and in fact, you know, one one of the situ one of the situations that comes to mind is when he pokes a hole in, or he pokes at their bias when he says it in one day, when you know he says about a Roman centurion, he says this Roman centurion, he's had more faith than anyone else I've encountered here, who's Jewish. That would be like saying, you know, you know, I haven't found faith like this straight white guy like anywhere else like this guy here and it would have been so reviling it would have caused such commotion to think that he was praising a roman centurion or saying there's anything good about this person it's not about who's on the list though because i think that's part of the problem we have developed right now is we, many people have a new list and they've moved those individuals to the center of what of the hierarchy of what's important and the spirit in which you do things matters as well, right? Mm -hmm. So in Matthew 16, 6, it says, Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Mm. And so yeast being a metaphor for their teaching, uh, maybe even, you know, their influence and what they spread. It, 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 you know, they, they say all the right things or they say many of the right things. But the spirit in which they do it mm -hmm. does not bring about the righteousness that God requires, right? Now, I was thinking about, so many of those verses seem so archaic to us, like who thinks about yeast, you <laughs> know? Um, but I was, you know, if I would update it, I might say something like, watch out, be careful, be on your guard against your religious woke ideology because it spreads and consumes the host identity. Mm. Same, wow. same problem. Mm -hmm. Right. What we're not consumed with the use of the Pharisees. Many people are starting to say we're we're getting consumed with woke ideology, which makes people into black and white thinkers. Um, you know, it's judgmental. It's harsh. It 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 preferences one identity against another, and maybe some would would say I'm being unkind there. But I think that's the kind of message that Jesus' message is biting. We don't hear it as biting anymore, but it is right. biting. It's it is. challenging our categories, and it's challenging who we put on the list. I mean, I'm not. I'm sure that in some contexts, in some situations, that that Pharisee could be a religious person, you know, a traditional Christian religious person. I guess what I'm saying, and I think you're saying, is we're seeing a shift in the culture that's shifting away from Christianity. It's shifting away from the church. It's shifting towards something different and um but the same spirit is there it's still super aggressive it's still very much about you know saying the right things doing the right things i see it in my kids mark like my kids didn't grow up in church like i i've i've lived i've raised them outside the church we've been you know we've been meeting in homes and we haven't been going to church they haven't been raised with that religiosity and i'm thinking i'm I, i've been protecting them from you know, growing up feeling crappy about yourself, growing up trying to get your own sense of righteousness through like your works and stuff like that. And here, here, I think I've protected them and, 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 and their relationships online with their friends on social media, it is brutal. Like, like they, we've had long conversations and I won't talk about it. I won't say which kids have talked about it because they're afraid of like being canceled. They're afraid of like thinking for themselves and questioning the the rhetoric and the you know the ideology that their that their friends are just spewing out. The friends haven't taken five minutes to think about it, but it's like they're just copying the script that's been handed to them, and it's brutal. And I think, oh, here it is. It's it's raising religiosity is alive and well in uh, in North America. That's one of the. Uh horizontal aspects that we've talked about is that religion is not when you say that religion is not just this metaphysical construct that we believe it's it's about performance right mm -hmm. essentially it's about performance identity 
So in other words, I have to do these certain things. I have to demonstrate these certain things to the group to be acceptable. That to me is the core of what generates the power in religion because people are looking for validation. They're looking for someone to say, you're cool, you're right. Those are all just cultural validation terms. And so we're at the you know, we're always sort of at the mercy of other people unless we can short circuit that and begin to get a sense of connection with God because then God begins to help us get out from under the influence and the, the judgment and the, the group think. I'll tell a story when I was doing the red herring. Many people who were at the red herring would recognize this. Probably 80% of the people there were, were kind of goth influenced. Some were hardcore goth. They would come in all dressed in black. They would wear gothic jewelry, dyed hair. It, it had a particular look to it, right? And I, I remember this one guy who came in one night, and, you know, he's shacking us out. He was sort of some street, you know, street goth guy. And he had a cane, and he was just sort of, you know, chatting. He was checking us out, and he was talking to me, and he's like, oh, you know, um, I'm not one of your uh, Christian sheep follower types, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, I'm different. I, I, I look different. I act different. You know, I'm not like those, you know, those middle class sheep kind of thing. And I'm thinking, but 80% of the people in here are dressed exactly like you. So in other <laughs> words, he sees himself as against another group. He, he sees his identity mm-hmm. as different than the average person, but he doesn't see that his identity is pretty uniform based on everybody else that's hanging out at the red herring. And I think that's part of the secret sauce, right, of why do people get into these tribal identities because it gives us a sense of belonging against the group that we don't like. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that too. There, There's something d- divisive at the very heart of this human uh, tendency to cling to an identity, right? And I, you know, I experience it too, you know, Mark, like, you know, I too sometimes want to claim or cling on to some kind of identity that makes me feel special and makes me feel different. And, and it's usually against another group. Like we, we joke about this, but like I do this with Gen X, you know, like I've caught myself many times like rallying against Gen X is, you know, the greatest generation. We have the best music. We grew up in the eighties, all this stuff. And it's usually the next breath I'm criticizing baby boomers or something like that. And you know, we do it in fun, but at the heart of it, it's this nature, this natural thing, this instinct to like want to identify, you know, yourself with a group, but instinctively or intuitively, it's about division. It's about saying we're not like them. And, and, and so they're the, they're the enemy. That, that becomes the definition of group righteousness, right? There's a story in Acts that um, Apostle Paul, and, and, and he um, goes up to Jerusalem and meet with the other apostles because he's a little different himself. He was one of the only apostles that didn't meet Jesus face-to-face, and he got his uh, commissioning supernaturally after the fact, right? So there's always that kind of like, do I have it right? Do I not? He goes to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles. They give him some, you know, they, they hear him out, hear out his gospel. So Galatians 2.12 there's a story of, um, yeah, Peter, who's essentially giving into peer pressure. So before certain men came from James, who was also an apostle, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. So in other yeah. words, he, he did a little group thing. You know, the important apostles came to visit, and right. he no longer sat and ate with the Gentiles. He switched to eating with the Jewish believers. and right. And... Um, Paul calls him out and basically says, you're being a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. And it was important enough to call out one of the main apostles hmm. in Jerusalem and say, you're being a hypocrite because you used to eat with Gentiles, but now you're switching and you're eating with, um, you know, with your group. Because that's what's heart, at heart in the gospel is this, uh, this ability to uh, transcend the group identity that the gospel transcends individual groups. It's more powerful than the righteousness that you can get from one group. Yeah, and that was at, that was at stake in that moment. Yeah, I think we're starting to move now into maybe some good news. We don't want to just talk about the division and the identity politics and and sort of what's wrong with the world. But where are we going with this? What what does Jesus have to offer, or what does the gospel have to offer that, that, to transcend that that natural tendency? I think of like even in Jesus's day. The, the, the band of disciples that he gathers, like it's unbelievable 
uh, who he gathers together. Because what he ends up doing, he ends up transcending the identity politics of his day, right? So you have like a group of fishermen that follow him, which would have been the working class of his of his day. And then, you know, Matthew, a tax collector, is also following him, who is this rich guy who's, you know, who's, who's become wealthy uh, in a maybe, you know, a questionable manner. And then so you have this, you have this tax collector collecting, you know, taxes for Rome, but then you have, you know, Simon the Zealot in the group. And he's, as a zealot, he would have been all about tearing down Rome, right? Like plotting how to overthrow Rome. Uh, You had many women and, and different types of group people in Jesus's disciples. So he was able to create this group of people that would have never ever you know really had any relationship with each other in the, in the normal world of his day and yet they came together i'd like to pursue that i'd like to understand how he managed to do that how is it that we can maybe transcend these identities these identity politics to really come together in, in unity i mean so just some i mean that's a theological truth right as well is that um just as there's one body the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Mm-hmm. We were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So there's a, there's a core aspect of, of what Christ has, has done is that he's created an identity in which wherever you're coming from, there's room for you. And, and, and the proof of your acceptance is the gift of the spirit. We've made those those groups smaller and smaller, and there's more and more of those identity groups, and they're less and less satisfying because they're more and more, I think, often more and more r- removed from reality. It's interesting that so many people are, feel a need to put absolutely everything about their life on YouTube. Uh, uh, again, performative. Here's who I am. Here's what I think. Here's what I believe. You know, and I enjoy watching them. I do, but at the same time, there's something unsatisfying about it because it's like people are trying so hard to get that validation, but it, ultimately, I think it comes from God. I think one of the risks we have with this podcast, this episode, is that instantly people are going to want to put you and me into a box or like so are they with us or are they with them especially that opening parable it's it maybe seems like i'm on the other side to some of the people who are listening today but let me just say let me just clarify that i don't think that's the right way i don't think that's the way of christ to pick a side and to say i'm with them it reminded me of this time in um in the old testament where um uh, this this angelic kind of figure, which we might we think might have been like a theologically a pre visit of Jesus, you know these Christophanies that happened in the Old Testament, and and this this Christ kind of like angel kind of comes to Joshua, and Joshua says to him, "Are you for us or are you for our enemies?" And this guy just goes, "No," he said, "I come as commander of God's army." He's like, I'm not playing into your your view of us and them. I, I, he just says, no, I'm coming on a completely different plane. I'm bringing a completely different kingdom. I come from a completely different place, and I'm not going to play into your, you know, your us and them game that you're playing here. And I see that a couple of times with Jesus even. They came to trap him with identity politics. They came to trap him with questions that would either make him one of them or, or show that he's one of us, but either way, he was going to get screwed like, for example, when they brought the woman caught, caught in adultery and they said, you know, Moses' law says we should stone her. What do you say? And if Jesus said, well, go ahead, stone her, then he could, they could say to Rome, hey, he's, he's uh, taking the law into his own hands, and they could get him in trouble with Rome, with the Gentiles. If he says don't stone her, then they could say he's not a prophet because he's, not, he's, not, he's denying or contradicting Moses, the law. So there were, there were times like this or when he said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Again, it's a trap. Are you going to be with them? Or are you going to be with us? And in both of these, both of these traps, he, just, he gives them this answer that, that, that basically says no. I'm not playing this game with you. I come from a different place. And with the woman, he's like, okay, those of you who have never sinned, cast the first stone. Just brilliant. He didn't play into their hand. Uh, with the taxes to Caesar, he says, show me a coin. And they, they bring him a coin. And whose inscription's on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And in both situations, they're trying to ask a question. And based on his answer, frame him as either the enemy with the enemy or with us 
but that had consequences as well. And in both situations, he's like, no, um, I, I'm coming from a different place. But I, I agree with that. But at the same time, I would, I would say it's not like Jesus was just saying, yeah, I'm good with Rome. Rome was a problem, right? Rome was oppressive. Rome oppressed and killed. Right. Jesus killed and oppressed many Christians. Mm -hmm. It's just that the battle wasn't going to be won by playing the same game that everybody else is playing. Rome right. was still a problem, right? Absolutely. Religion was still a problem. Um, it's and, and so today I think one of the difficulties that we have is that religion has become very privatized. So it's okay for you to believe whatever you want. You can have your private belief in Jesus, you know, and believe whatever metaphysical stuff you want to believe. Do what you want on your own time in your own house. But if you say that, you know, um, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, which is also found in the Bible. In other words, Rome is on a collision course with Jesus, mm -hmm. and Jesus is going to win. Right. It's not like the answer is, you know, we just do our own thing and, and leave, every, you know, like it's just that the battle is being won differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same thing. Any group that wants to have power over another group is on a collision course with Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and they'll either be humbled, they, you know, history will find a way uh, to humble you. It's not like it's just whatever you believe is okay and, and whatever identity you want is okay. It's like God can put the pieces of anyone together. But if you think that you're going to have power over God in the long run, you are not. God is going, going to, you know, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. I don't believe that just means after you die. I believe that means in this world that the, the nations of the world belong to God. And ultimately, it, God is going to rule over the nations and over the identities of those nations. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think I don't think he um, was saying Rome's okay. Absolutely not. Uh, he was saying, I'm coming from a different place. I kind of have a different kingdom. I have a different way to look at this. I'm not going to pick one or the other. In fact, in the end, the two conspired against him. In the end, Jesus becomes the enemy of both groups. So maybe we should be careful on this, on this episode, Mark. We, we might have everybody hating us. <laughs> then we must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, right. Which brings me back to the cross. So both groups basically hate each other, but they conspire together to to have Jesus crucified. And um, I, I was thinking about this idea of the identity. So I'd like, to, I'd like to zero in on this identity thing. So what is it about and and how should we think about it? And um, I was thinking about this and there's a verse in Philippians, it's Philippians 2.8. And I think it's really interesting. He starts that passage by saying, let this mind be in you. So He's like, there's, there's a way I want you to think. There's a way, I there's a mindset I want you to adopt. And, and then he goes, it was also in Christ. So he's like, I want you to think like Jesus does on this thing I'm about to tell you. He says, though Jesus was um, the, in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. And I thought this was so amazing when I thought about this because Jesus has this identity that's literally deity. And even he, he, he has this mindset, I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm not going to consider equality with God something I'm going to hold on to and clench my fist with. I'm going to hold this with an open hand. And then he says, he, in the next phrase, it says he emptied himself. So he literally poured out that identity. He says, I'm not going to cling to it. I'm not going to grasp it. I'm going to let it go. And it says he becomes a servant and he comes in the likeness of humans. He identifies as human. So here's the guy who is, you know, according to the Christian theology, God, and he has every right to hold on to that privilege and to hold on to that position of superiority. And he, he doesn't even do it. He lets it go. He empties himself. He doesn't grasp onto it. And he becomes human. He just identifies with humanity. And he becomes obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So here we go. We're back to the cross again. And the writer is saying, I want you to think about things this way. I want you to have this mindset like that was in Jesus. Don't cling on to your identity. Don't cling on to that thing that makes you feel important or superior, like you should be holding on to this. Uh, like equality with God is something that you need to really hold on to. Let it go and 
and, and serve others and empty yourself for others and identify with humanity, not with your little slice of identity. And it, in one case, you see it actually happening practically where someone comes to Jesus and says, he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? He says, only God is good. It's like, holy man, he really, he's really let go of his identity where he's literally saying, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Jesus let it all go. He became of no reputation. It wasn't important to him. He lost himself in, in, in just identifying with humanity and serving and being obedient to this path that God had put him on. I mean, the cross is the heart of Christian identity, and so that's probably what makes it so difficult. And Because and, part of what we're saying sounds great, you know, but I think one of the key messages from Jesus was whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. There's an inversion. So God created, created people in the image of God and wants um, the best for them. We're in a struggle in the world because our identities are defined by our families, by our culture, but God created us and has a claim on our life. And there's a paradox in that, and there's a paradox in the cross, is that we most people are trying very hard to find their identity, to hold on to it, to, to build it up, to perform, to get their resume uh, you know, strong and, and active so that they can present themselves to the world as successful and important. You know, those, those are some of the recipes that we have in our culture, right, for identity. Or you have, a, you know, I think pop culture and social media, it, it, provi- it provides a smorgasbord of, of possibilities for identity. Almost anything is possible now. You can, you, can, you know, I was watching a video the other day of someone who, um, identifies as a dog and they were, you know, they were in a relationship and they identified as a dog and, 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 you know, it's performative. It's on YouTube and Instagram. It makes money, you know, there's, so there's all kinds of layers and levels to it, but, but there's a sense in our postmodern culture that you can almost define yourself any which way you want. Right. Yeah, so right. that, so the, on one hand, that sounds tremendously freeing, but the more, um, those, those identities get disconnected from real life, mm-hmm. the less powerful they are, the less satisfying they are. Mm-hmm. And, and so on the other side of that, you have the cross in which all of our identity gets poured and connected with Christ. Mm-hmm. And we can actually lose what you thought was your life. And then paradoxically, God meets you in that. And then you begin to find something new and something new can, can be created out of who, uh, who you thought you were and who, who God um, tells you and, and leads you to be. So it's, if everything is, the problem with the freedom of being anything you want is it's always performative. It's always about your works, right? Mm-hmm. And the cross is about God's work and what he's done. And through faith, we connect with that and we experience God's spirit and that leads us forward into a partnership with God. And he begins to, you know, he is the potter and we are the clay. And he begins to mold us and make us a part of his body in a way that is, you know, it's fruitful. Like the parable of talents that God has given everybody a certain amount of gifting or ability. But what we do with it and through our faith is a part of are, are offering to God, right? So if you're just living for yourself and you're just mm. living for who you are, no matter how cool or interesting or diverse or how many YouTube hits you have or Instagram likes you have, are you being fruitful as what God has put in your life manifesting and, and benefiting other people? Or is it just about you? If it's just about you, then your identity is, I think, is, is, um, is, is a works-based identity that will not lead you to have the kind of life that, that you're created for. Yeah, it's so funny. I like this focus on, on me, on myself, on my ego. Like it actually doesn't lead to something good. Like it, it doesn't make us happy. It's, I, human beings just play this out over and over and over again. Every major philosophy out there that, or religion that's brought some, some, that stood the test of time, let's say, has attested to this idea, like the focus on me or the ego doesn't make us happy. Like you say, it's performative. We don't feel, we never feel whole when we focus on that. We don't ever feel like we're there. We're, it's, we're never good enough. 
And, and then there's that division side. It, we, you know, we, it makes us feel superior to others. We, there's always a villain on the other end of that. And so it causes so much strife and discourse, discord. Um, and so the invitation of the cross, the invitation of Christ, the invitation of Christianity is to deny yourself, lose it. Like I, when you were talking, I remember, I remembered that verse that says, um, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live but it's not I who lives, it's Christ who lives through me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. But it's funny how that there's actually a freedom in just letting it go and dying and finding your life in, in Christ. Well, the second part of that is the life I, mean, I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in other words, the life that we have is mm -hmm. not just about you being unique and special and, and, and having lots of Instagram likes. It's you have been given a life to be fruitful and benefit other people. And, it, and there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot of incredible range in what that looks like. So that the metaphor of the body and that we're not all eyes, we're not all hands. There's so much unique, you know, diversity in the body, but all working together, that's how God is is making who he is known in the world. And so we have a unique role, uh, you know, it's economic as well, right? By that, I mean, our identity has to um, have impact in the world, it has to be fruitful for, you know, so, so many times I think people develop identities that are disconnecting them from other people and disconnecting them for the world. Well, then you're being, um, I think that that, identity is egocentric and it's focused on yourself and many artists i've been to art school and i've struggled with this at times you know being an artist can be one of those identities that sort of allows you to say well i'm an i'm an artist or i'm a filmmaker or i'm a writer those kind of identities don't need as much because we kind of assume that they don't have a lot of impact for most people but they can also be a barrier right because whoever god's creating you to be if you're connected with Christ, it should be having an impact in the world. I think it's a mistake for our culture to drill down on secondary identities, you know, and to really be focusing on the things that make us different, whether it's race or gender or, um, you know, the many different types of ways that we are uh, differentiating ourselves from others. I think that that path doesn't lead to a good place um, it seems like, you know, when we focus on these secondary identities, it just, it breeds the, um, you know, the division and it breeds the strife. Uh, and, and, you know, again, getting back to, to Jesus, you know, that, that zealot had to let go of his identity as a zealot to be in a group with a tax collector. And the fishermen had to let go of their thing to be in the group with with a tax collector or 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 with with, with women in the group or whatever it might be. Um, I feel like the way forward is to be like Christ, is to let go of your identity and and identify with humanity. Uh, that we're all you know we're all like each other. Like we're all here, <laughs> struggling through this life, trying to do our best and trying to you know. Uh, to live and become what we're what we're meant to be and i see this message um, of letting go of your secondary identity is really really important and finding it in jesus i think of this verse in galatians 320 or the like context there is like we're supposed to be putting on christ and we're like imitating him and being in him and in that verse he says uh, in christ there's neither jew nor greek there's neither slave nor free, and there's no male and female. And then it, it goes on to talk about just the unity, that thing you were saying about the body. And so like when you think of Jew or Greek, it's like race is not an issue here. Uh, slave or free, class class is not an issue here. And in, in Christ, gender isn't, a, isn't an issue either. I don't think it's saying that these things don't exist. I think it's saying don't make these things your identity. Don't make these secondary things your identity. Uh, let it all go and find yourself in Christ. Um, and, and that's how we can live together. That's how we can live in peace. Um, and I think of one, one last thing I'd like to say, and you probably have more to say, Mark, but I, I recently watched the Crash movie, the movie Crash again. It was made about five or six years ago. 
uh, great. It's incredible film. I think it won best film that year. I think in 2016. And, um, it's a brilliant script. It, it, it feels like a modern day parable, something, G, you know, Jesus would have told. I won't give away the whole story, but what's interesting about that story is that the victims in the first half of the movie, they end up becoming kind of like the villains in the second half. Like they make choices that, that really cast them in a bad light. And then the absolute like assholes in the first half end up becoming kind of heroes in the second. And it, it just turns everything upside down. And in, in the end, you walk away from this movie going, man, all these things that divide us, all these things we cling on to for identity, what makes us better than that person? In just one moment, in one decision, the villains become victims and the victims become villains. And in the end, we realize we're just, we're just all human. It's complicated. Humanity is complicated. And I think the invitation of Christ and the cross is, let go of those secondary and uh, those secondary inferior identities that only separate you, only cause strife, make you feel like you're never good enough. Let that go, lose it, don't grasp onto it, and find yourself, you know, in Christ, um, and, and and take take on that that mindset. Yeah, I think the spirit in which things are uh, are operating is more important. So the Bible says to test the spirits, right, and in other words, there, there, there's behind individual behavior and action and personalities, there's a spirit, and is, is that a spirit of control that's essentially trying to get other people to act and think and believe and behave a certain way, or is there's a spirit of freedom. In, in Christ, there's a spirit of freedom. And so I, you could have all the right words, you could even have the right list, and you can believe in your list, but if you are not, you know, if, if you don't have love, then you have nothing, right? If the mm-hmm. spirit behind what you're doing is not um, leading yourself and others towards Christ, if it's leading them away, then that that's a bigger issue. I was thinking of the story of um, the prodigal son. That's really an identity story, right? Mm-hmm. So the prodigal son asks his father for, you know, his inheritance. His father gives him, you know, his, his inheritance. And he leaves and he goes and he... He gets into trouble in a, in a foreign land. He, he ends up being, you know, spending all his money, having this, having parties, and ends up eating the food of pod, the pods that were fed to pigs. It says, and he, you know, he realizes at some point that wait a minute, even the servants of my father eat better than I do. You know, so he starts a journey to back towards his father. And I, I think of identity, it's not just about a mantle that you put on, like, now I'm a this, or, you know, or I'm a goth, or I'm a whatever it is, you know, a banker, or whatever. It's, it's also, a, in the biblical sense, it's a direction. We're all mm. on a pathway towards the Father. The Father willingly lets us go out into the world and explore and, you know, make a mess of our lives and so forth. That, I don't think that so much bothers him. What matters is that we're willing to come back towards the Father. And, and so the prodigal decides to do that. But in his initial part of his journey, it says, you know, he's thinking like a slave. Mm. So he thinks, you know, the slaves that work for my father's kingdom eat better than I do. So I'll just go back and I'll essentially be, be you know, like a servant or a slave. But then the father sees him on the road and, and runs out to him, puts a ring on him, gives, you know, wants to throw a party for him and so forth because he's just glad that his son is back. So in other words, you know, a servant or a slave is someone who's rule-based, someone who thinks, you know, I've got to be in the hierarchy a certain way. I've got to follow the rules. I've got to perform to be acceptable. But the father, as soon as he sees the son coming back towards him, he wants to throw a giant party. He wants to get, you know, he wants to give his son this a ring on his finger to show that he's he, he's his son again. He's a part of his kingdom. And that's, so God is inviting people back towards him. And I think the direction that we're going matters more than how you currently understand your identity, whether you, you know, whatever it is you identify or think about yourself, whether you think you're far from God or close to God, it just it just matters that you're willing and that you're on that journey towards God. I, I like the end of the story. It says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father wants to throw a party. He's out in the field he doesn't want to go to the party. He, you know, he's angry at the father. In fact, you know, he says, uh, "Look, father, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you've I've never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So there's, you know, there's that righteousness. There's that I'm, I've done all the right things. I've, I never left home. I did everything you wanted me to do. I'm, you know, I'm a good whatever, fill in the blank. Um, but he's he's not getting the same gift. He's not getting the same reward. He's not getting the same identity. He is still a servant because he doesn't have the freedom that the prodigal has who went away, squandered his wealth, did everything wrong, joined a rock band, you know, mm-hmm. snorted coke off the table, whatever it is, fall in the blank. You know, he came back and he had an identity change in the eyes of God that matters more than the clothing that you wear or, you know, how you say certain things or, or how you identify. This kind of brings us back full circle to how we started because I think Jesus told that story of the prodigal son again to the Pharisees and and in the in the context was they were criticizing Jesus for the way he was eating with sinners and he was he was embracing these you know these marginalized people and so he's he's literally saying you guys are like the older brother who who is like looking down on the younger brother for the way he's been acting but but this younger brother is like this these people I'm hanging out with now and I'm the reason I'm celebrating and I'm embracing them is because they were lost and now they're found. And I think it's really interesting in that story because the pathway back to the father was was a, the pathway of humility, right? Like the son claimed his inheritance from his dad. I am your son. He he grabbed it with a with with you know with 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 fists and with with ego and with arrogance. And his journey away and then back was to literally let go and empty himself and lose everything. He lost his life. He and lost then eventually his life. He found it. And then he found it. You know, let this mind be in you. Don't consider equality with God or this identity you're, you have to hold on to. Don't. Let it go. Lose your life. And that's how you'll find it. Hopefully we've thrown out some guidelines on how to approach this uh, topic, some new ways to think about it. As always, we'd love to hear from you. If anything we've said uh, sparked uh, an interest or sparked a response, please send us an email. 